the general word that everybody uses, nasty, you know, I mean, a nasty divorce battle, or I watched a brutal divorce, but nobody tries to change th those words, like those, those outcomes and those outlooks. Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. thrilled to bring you a very special episode of Cold Steel. We had the pleasure of interviewing Lena Youssefi. Lena has won more awards than we have time to list, but most impressively has been listed as one of Canada's top 25 most influential lawyers, is a Vancouver top 40 under 40 alumni, and is currently the top rated divorce lawyer in the city of Vancouver by a number of different rating agencies. We have a wide-ranging conversation with Lena about the stresses of divorce, the special issues surrounding separations within the medical and surgical field, and the mechanics of how to get through it all in an intact manner with some level of grace and integrity. We hope you learn as much as we did. Lena, thank you very much for joining us today on Cold Steel. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Could you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and, and what your training pathway was? Um, I, I was born in Iran, and uh, we, you know, I was a child of war, and my father, who at that at that time, when I was around 12 years old, was um, actually reaching the height of his uh, career. But in order to give me and my sister a better life, he applied as an immigrant uh, to come to Canada. And that's where our journey started. Um, I, I was the rebel and the black sheep in the family, so I didn't follow a very straight path. I uh, didn't know what I wanted to do with life, and I always compared myself to my sister, who's a year older than me, um, who was always an honor student. And, you know, she always did really well at school and later became a doctor. Um, I, I, I was always comparing myself to her and I just wasn't getting what she was getting. So I kind of went sideways. And at some point I was even expelled from university due to various issues, which I'm not going to uh, bore you with. But one of them was related to um, depression arising from our immigration to Canada because of the cultural shock and losing the friends and the relatives that you know we had. Um, but surprisingly, when I finally woke up and I realized, no, you know, I'm going to do something good with my life and decided to become a lawyer, um, my sister was just, she's a year, uh, um, at, she's a year older than me, so she was always a year ahead of me at school. Uh, she was surprisingly, after getting all the marks and all the honor rolls, she surprisingly uh, was not accepted to medical school. And 
when the, when she asked why, they told her she didn't have enough life experience. So um, she had to take a year off to do her um, Doctors Without Borders volunteer work. And during that year, I graduated from university. So in the next year, we both at the same time got into uh, medical school and law school, respectively. So despite taking different paths, we ended up starting our professional schools at the same time, which I thought was really meaningful when you look at when you looked at our lives and how um, different we were. And um, yeah, after law school and you know getting a job as a family lawyer, I just realized that um, the the family law business and uh, the way that a lot of family lawyers are conducting family law cases just in my mind just goes against our nature um, as as human beings that family law and separations are highly emotional and you know they they're extremely intricate and sensitive and to guide people to court and you know have them face one another against each other um, and sometimes have their children be the referee in the fight uh, is just so so counterproductive to our growth as a society so I decided to start my own law firm and, you know, treat it as though, you know, when somebody walks through our doors, they're going to the spa. Um, they need to be taken care of and assured and we need to find the resolution instead of uh, motivating them to engage in a battle or a fight or, or me versus you. Because to me, family law, even after separation, is really about the best interest of the family as a unit. Um, and that takes compromise on, on behalf of everybody to, to, to make sure that we have the best interests of the family, not just um, in the individual people who have now separated. So that's how YLAW started. And uh, I'm, I'm really pleased to um, advise that it's been such a successful project and uh, it's been positive And we're just very, very thrilled that, that it, it became su successful because I had a very drastic view of how it should be done and it, it wasn't I haven't noticed what I've done to be to have been done in the past so it was very new and uh, it was a big risk but thankfully it, uh, it created just positivity and growth that's an amazing story uh, it's an incredible story and you, you know we we can't think of probably any more life experience that you and your sister had so that that part in particular is uh, is kind of unreal isn't it it's it's amazing what these selection committees, um, what they seem to pick out and pick up mm -hmm. sometimes, yeah. you know, it, it personally, although certainly we wouldn't have had nearly the life experience that you guys had. It's interesting. It, you know, your story takes me back. My, my brother's also a lawyer in Toronto and mm -hmm. he and I lived together while I was in medicine and he was in law school yes. uh, in Toronto. And it was a, it was a special and it was a very neat time. Mm -hmm. you, you've mentioned so many other things to unpack there. Tell us more about your your philosophy and, and how your particular practice and business is set up. Because, you know, to be honest, um, Amir is uh, um, married and has a, a fantastic family. I'm divorced and I think also have a fantastic family. But in my personal uh, voyage, I, I never heard at any point anyone talk remotely like you just did. So mm -hmm. I, I'm curious what, how you manifest that, how, how that's practical and what your practice does look like. I, you know, I, it took me a decade to basically get to where I am because, you know, there's this, as long as us, us family lawyers look at this as a job and separate ourselves from our clients and think that the resolution to family law is by advocating the rights of an individual 
And if those rights are not completely met, we're just going to go and fight it out. As long as we have that attitude, all we're going to do is destroying families. And I mean that even in the cases where we're as successful as it gets, because I've won over 90% of my cases since I started becoming a lawyer. And for I can say for all those 90% of the cases, no matter how extreme the win was, such as, you know, cases, for example, for child abduction, where you're reuniting a child with the father, still everybody lost. Because even in that case, when, you know, when I'm reuniting a child with the father, she's going to be separated from her abducting mother. And regardless of what the mother did, that child deserves both parents. So what really pains me is that family law has become a business where maximizing um, interests and profits has taken over the reason why we're doing it in the first place. And we've almost become blinded to that aspect of our lives. And, you know, I watched families that I helped and, you know, I was successful in fall apart because of the countless number of days and hours and weeks, you know, having somebody come to my office and write an affidavit against somebody who at one point they loved and, you know, they joined their beautiful masculine and energy forces, uh, masculine energies to create a child. And now, you know, you're taking that person and saying, you know, I could get you this and it could get you that. And all it takes is, you know, is, is, is some sort of a battle where we just have to strategize and we're going to win. Like, you know, it's, uh, it, that that concept has become so foreign to me and my place is to just do my part in showing that we've just gone so off so wrong by separating ourselves as lawyers from our clients you know any you just said you know you've gone through you may have perhaps have gone through a divorce I think everybody in our society has either gone through something like that or heard of something like that. And it's always, you know, that the general word that everybody uses nasty, you know, I'm in a nasty divorce battle or I watched a brutal divorce, but nobody tries to change those words, like those, those outcomes and those outlooks. And I blame that on, you know, and this is going to be a bold statement, but I blame that on our, on our lawyers and our legal system for, for, you know, kind of like advocating for that approach so um, it, all it takes is just being empathetic and, you know, putting yourself in that spot and, and, you know, asking, would I like to be where my client is? If I was my client, is this what something I would have done, knowing that I've seen the ending of a lot of family law cases myself and I've seen what happens uh, when you engage in a battle? And if the answer is no, then why are you doing it to your own client? That's my philosophy. And, 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 and I think, you know, there's a lot of compromise in my practice, but at the end of the day, there's long-term benefits and, you know, amicableness and agreements and working with each other because, you know, we, we all came together as, as a, a community in the best interest of the family, regardless of how much we compromised. And I, and I really hope that the future of family law moves that way. That's definitely something that our justice system, our government, and some lawyers such as myself are trying to advocate towards. So interesting to hear you talk about empathizing with your with your client, which on the face of it seems like a pretty uh, common sense or pretty straightforward kind of assumption. But it's, it's interesting, like even in medicine, 
there's a certain sense of like you know having to have a bit of a professional relationship with your your patients like you know there there's a sense that you can't get so involved with the patients that you lose your uh objectivity or you lose your ability to actually try to like objectively whatever that means objectively see the facts and a lot of people have written kind of against that way of thinking uh, you know the book that comes to my mind is in shock by rana audish where she talks about her own experience is becoming an ICU patient. But but if anything, like I feel like in law, that would be an even harder position to take or or mm-hmm. more radical view to take. You know, just like Dr. Ball, my younger brother is a, is a lawyer too. And, and I've learned a lot about uh, the sort of law from his eyes. How, what do you think about that idea of maintaining objectivity or, or not getting drawn into to your clients mm-hmm. um, sort of battles or their, their personal struggles? You know, I think there's a difference between getting involved uh, in, in somebody's life and getting too close and, you know, too emotional. There's a difference between that and putting yourself in your client's place. By putting yourself in your client's place, you become objective because when, when I, so for example, I'll give you an example. Previously, when clients would come to me and they're like, hey, like, I, I can't get I can't agree with this person and, you know, I'm wasting time. What do I need to do? And I would just say, well, you know, just start a notice of family claim. It just gets the process started. You know, notice of family claim is a document you file in court and you serve the spouse and they have, it forces them to respond within 30 days. So my intentions as a, as a lawyer is just to say, Hey, you want her to respond. We just need to file this claim and serve. But when I put myself in the place of that spouse, and imagine the night when I'm having dinner and somebody knocks on my door and serves me with divorce papers, you know, from somebody who I love and, you know, perhaps I have a, I have a kid with and I just see it on paper. What I think is not, oh, he's just trying to get me to, you know, respond. What I think is the, the, the love of my life is actually suing me and, and he's, he or she is taking me to court and there's going to be like a custody war, you know, like, that's the difference. The mind of a lawyer is, you know, how can I do to move this matter forward? But the, the, the mind of the client and the spouse is I've just been violated and betrayed. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get the best lawyer and I'm going to respond. And I, I would have compromised, but I'm not going to compromise anymore if this is the way you're going to do it. So, you know, that, that's, that's what I'm talking about when I, when I say when you separate yourself from emotions and people and the interests of the family as a unit, you are going to cause destruction. And I totally get your point. You know, like 150 years ago, you know, the biggest principle of uh, the oath that we take as lawyers is that we're only going to act in the best interest of our clients and we're only going to and we're going to be overzealous and we're going to be fighting tooth and nail to get them the rights that they need. What I'm saying is that that concept applies to every type of law out there except for family law. Because for family law, if you do that, you, 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 a family is coming apart and you're pulling it even more and more apart. And you're t- putting two people you know, in a, in a fighting ring and you go round and round and round and round. And sometimes you put their children in there as the referee to pick a side because you're a lawyer and you need to protect their interests. But you know, when, when you look at the basic element of human beings and how societies work, doing that is not gonna go anywhere positive. So, you know, my I I I maintain my professionalism, you know, sometimes you know, <laughs> guilty as charged, sometimes I do, you know, relate to their pain. 
because it's hard to hear people in pain all day and, and, and not care about it. Um, but what I try to do to stay objective is just to put myself in their place and ask myself, having seen what happens if there is a fight, what would I do in this situation? And that's the advice I give to my clients. That's incredibly refreshing. And, uh, and you know, I agree with everything that you said, whether that's that's in law or, or as a physician. And uh, <laughs> if you ever want to change careers someday, I think you'd, you'd fit right in uh, with medicine after all. So there you go. Thank you. I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about divorce specifically in physicians. And, you know, in sort of doing some background reading around this, I came across a study uh, which actually showed that contrary to maybe popular opinion or popular kind of social media type stuff, uh, it, physicians apparently actually have lower rates of divorce than maybe the general population or, or I, I think at least uh, among other healthcare workers. What's been your experience? Uh, obviously, you know, the people coming to you are, are coming because they're in trouble. But sort of, you know, in, in your practice, do physicians tend to be a big part of it? And, uh, and where did we sort of rank in terms of other professions in, in terms of experiencing divorce? I find um, that I, I, I do agree with that, uh, with that study. I, I think there's two reasons why we see uh, physicians less and less, at least in the litigation realm. Um, and that there's two reasons. One is that they're very smart. So like if you tell them, you know, like they, they do a cost benefit analysis of fighting versus settling and because they're very smart and they tend to let their rational minds um, guide, guide them instead of like the emotional side of it, uh, they tend to settle a lot quicker. The other thing is that they're very busy. Uh, family law litigation or, you know, like the, the, the negotiations and the document disclosure is a very, very time consuming, all encompassing uh, task. And I find that a lot of physicians that I that I help simply don't have the time to 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 invest in family law, you know, litigation or or conflict. So they tend to want to settle and resolve more than fight. Um, when it comes to finances, you know, they, they do send, tend to be, you know, they, they, they earn quite a you know, good sum and it's not like they're not going to, they, they don't tend to penny pinch. They don't tend to want to, you know, maximize the financial gain. Um, they would much rather move on because they have a lot of other very, very important things in their hands, such as, you know, saving lives, literally, you know, if you, if you, if your job is to save lives and, um, you know, you're caught up, you know, fighting over money, a lot of them, you know, because they like to save lives, they try to focus on saving lives. And um, when it comes to children, that's that's the interesting part. I, I find, you know, two, two different types of physicians. Uh, the ones that tend to be from a bit of an older generation where, you know, one person is a physician and, you know, the other person is a homemaker or, you know, has, has a job which is not as demanding. So, uh, they tend to settle on, cost, on on parenting time by allowing the, the the other parent who perhaps has stayed at home or has a less demanding job to be the primary caregiver of the child. And they work with that spouse to kind of maximize their time when they're not so busy. Um, there's the other type, which is happening more and more nowadays, where you get two physicians who, you know, married each other or, you know, are even in the middle of middle school, uh, uh, sorry, medical school and separating. Those are more interesting to me because it, it uh, they're both of you know equal education, equal careers, and when they have a child, um, they kind of like figuring out what to do in those situations can actually be a little bit more challenging um, because 
you get two very strong-minded people who have just 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 about the same amount to um, kind of offer to the child, or you know, come from um, very like equal financial background back, backgrounds. Um, those people, I find easier to deal with. Um, I, I find that because there are more on equal level playing, playing fields, everything is just basically 50-50. And if they need help, you know, they go to a third person, um, you know, to, to help with the child or, 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 or so forth. So, you know, in the grand scheme of things, when I look at all the professions that I help, physicians actually are the easiest to deal with. To be honest, they're actually a pleasure to deal with. I I just think that they they have their priorities straight and they're they're very intelligent and they just look at the reality of their situation and they try to work towards that. Um, the the main problem arises when there's an inequality in power and and balance and you know one person demands more than they should, such as you know too much custody or parenting time and wanting to disallow usually the physician from even like seeing the child, even, you know, on a part-time basis, because they say, I'm a better parent. You never had time. You were never a good father. Therefore, you know, you're not deserving of spending enough time with the child. Those situations are quite heart-wrenching because I, 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 um, they're, they're more difficult to resolve because um, there's, you know, it's the interest of the one parent versus the interest of the child. And it, it's a, it's a bit more difficult to align them together. This is a very niche question sort of to ask, but do you see, differences in terms of both the numbers of uh, of physicians like let's say a surgeons versus medicine uh, physicians who are in medicine uh, do you see number both in terms of numbers of uh, people coming forward who are seeking a divorce and uh, and the way that it plays out i mean this with all due respect but i think the surgeons are their, their cases are a lot more problematic than you know like general like mds and there's various reasons for that. Um, like I would say the top two, one is because of what I would see as really inhuman hours of work, you know, shifts where they have to like stay up, at, you know, sometimes for like 36 hours in a row, they really can't give more than, more than, more than what they give to their job. So, you know, even when it comes to dating, when it comes to relationship, when it comes to children, so they give so much of themselves to to their career that when it comes to their family, it's not that they don't want to give more. There's just nothing left. So there's a lot of breakdown of relationships because of that, which I, I think, you know, it's, it's quite familiar, might be a familiar subject to uh, to you guys, you know, ha having done it yourselves. And um it's it's kind of heartbreaking because I don't blame them for wanting to have families and children, but they have this job which is competing with you know them being able to give to their family and children. So I see more surgeons divorcing than you know general practitioners who can you know manage their hours and their time and you know can kind of like work together to take care of their family. And the second thing is I surgeons tend to be a lot more um, set on their ways, you know, they tend to be a bit more opinionated on, on how, what needs to happen and, you know, what results need to be achieved, which creates a bit of inflexibility when it comes to negotiations and settlements. Um, there, you know, there's a very famous case, it's all over the media, Dr. Devatheson, he, he, um, he, he's in Singapore, but his wife was here. Um, and, you know, it's like the case is basically like a big story, which is all over the media. And you can kind of like, if you read the judgment, you will see, I mean, he's a very extreme example, but he had this mindset of how things should be. 
and he did not stop fighting anybody until you know he he would have reached you know what he wanted to reach and during that process you know he just created so much destruction so i the, the, i i think you know he's definitely an anomaly you know he's a very extreme case and you know in my experience at least in my cases i've never you know met a surgeon like him uh, but i have I have had ca cases with surgeons where where the conflict is higher. Just one because they don't, they can't. Just like they couldn't give that much time to their family, they can't give that much time to their case, and that creates a lot of problems because there is no communication or you know cooperation. And even when uh, we do obtain the information, um, they they, they you know, sometimes they they tend to be more set in their ways and and think that you know the law should be this way when the law is different. Uh, is saying differently so that that's this that's the difference i've noticed personally with surgeons oh i think that's so well said and your your insight into the surgical brain is uh is remarkable there, oh. there, there's there's <laughs> there's no doubt you just hit a lot of nails on the head so to speak with that you know you know it, it, your comments bring up an interesting point and again i don't we don't know this um intuitively but it seems like the framework or the rules of the divorce or separation process vary a fair bit, obviously from person to person, but from province to province. And I, I was curious why that is and, and what the mechanics of that uh, become for a lot of our listeners who, as you know, are across the whole country. Um, it, it depends on, um, you mean the Canadian provinces? Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, does it, does it differ if you're in Alberta versus British Columbia, for example? Um, you know, they, they were different, but they've, they've become a bit more uniform lately. You know, for example, in BC until 2013, like, which, you know, there, there was this like law, which I didn't agree with. And that said, you know, if you, um, if you come to a marriage with, let's say a million dollars, um, and, and you separate, you know, five years later, that million dollars that you came into the marriage with gets divided half and half, which made no sense to me, you know, like, it's okay if you divide what you accumulate during your relationship, but whatever you accumulated prior should not be divisible. So there was a difference in laws across the country. But, you know, lately, I, I think all those laws have become uniformalized to say that what you bring in is yours and what you accumulate during the relationship gets split half and half. Um, as far as child custody goes, again, that was something that was a bit different all over the country because some, I mean, this is pretty technical, but some provinces would say that the best interest of the child is the only thing that you should consider in parenting time uh, decisions. And some provinces were saying the best interest of the child is paramount. So those words carry different meanings and now it's become best interest of the child is the only thing that the court should consider. So that's another uniformity. The main um, difference right now, nowadays between provinces is really between Quebec and the rest of the country. And uh, that's that Quebec doesn't um, acknowledge common law relationship, which relationships, which seems quite strange to me. So, you know, in, in uh, BC or Alberta or Toronto, if you've been living with somebody for, you know, depends on like the length of time is different from province to province, but we're talking average two to three years. If you've lived, lived with them, you become common law. And, and once you're common law, your rights are pretty much the same as, as a married couple. So aside from the actual divorce papers, uh, spousal support, child support, and, and property divisions are all the same, regardless of whether you're married or common law. But uh, Quebec doesn't 
acknowledge that. So if you've been common law even for 20 years, you may walk out of that relationship with no rights to spousal support and potentially property. Uh, so that's that's the main difference between you know Quebec and the rest of the country. But the, the, um, all the other provinces as of today tend to be quite uniformized. I, I don't see too many differences in their in their family laws. Oh, that's fascinating, and it's very helpful to know. There's no no question, as I mentioned, for for all of our listeners. I, I'm curious just to go back to one element you said in, uh, in particular about the the rights or the or the the focus on on the children. Mm-hmm. So so what does that mean? Say in a in a in a hypothetical context where one parent does most of the caregiving, most of the income generation. And the other parent um, is really not engaged, not interested, and maybe the child say, and I realize it's a pretty nuanced, nuanced uh, example, but maybe the child even has a disability, for example, or is autistic. And, and really all of the, the time, the social, the education, the financial comes from one person. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden, you know, the other parent in this divorce is trying to achieve 50-50 or or really move move into a space that they haven't traditionally been. I realize that probably differs from case to case substantially, but but how does that concept um, sort of meet with the the standards across the country? Great question, and you know that's the center of I would say ninety percent of family law disputes. You know, so what happens is when you're a family unit, you know, you usually like delegate tasks, you know, like I'm going to cook or I'm going to take care of the baby most of the time. And you go out and you work and you earn money. There are situations where one person earns the money and takes care of the child or vice versa. Um, Again, like what it goes all back to is what is in the best interest of the child, right? So the argument has been made that, hey, I was the primary caregiver during our marriage. And now this person, now that we're separated, he he or she is coming saying, I want 50-50. But what you need to look at is forget about who took, who who was a primary parent and who wasn't and, you know, what they're fighting, uh, you know, what they're fighting against each other for. It's not about them. It's what's in the best interest of the child. So if after the the relationship, one parent who was kind of absent from the child's relationship wants to be present, wants to be a good parent, wants to contribute, and if that benefits the child, then whatever happened in the past essentially doesn't matter. Um, the, The judge or, you know, decision maker or mediator, whoever they look at, is this parent actually putting a good effort into making this child's life better by being a part of that child's life? So to make sure that the child is um, damaged as little as possible because of separation, and if and and the and in the if the answer is yes, um, both parents should be involved as long as they're putting that effort. Then what the, the history just simply doesn't matter. It will be considered in the grand scheme of things uh, to see you know like the ability of each parent. But the the test for parenting time is not who's a better parent. It's whether you have two decent parents who are good in, you know, in different ways. Mm-hmm. So um, th- that's, yeah, it, it, that, that tends to be the assumption that, you know, if historically somebody's been the primary parent, they should continue to do so. But, uh, you know, as, as you can appreciate, when you live with somebody under the same roof, even if you're not seeing your child, maybe you come home in the evening before your child goes to bed and you see the child, you know, like even for a couple hours and, and that's, that, that does good things to the child. But when you're separated 
and you know somebody says I've been the primary parent and you only get to see the child you know two hours a week what does that do, what does that do to the child you know as far as the right. bonding experience and and the, and the love that needs to be transferred back and forth between you know these three people so that, that's, that's a very so interesting yeah. Subject, but, yeah. yeah yeah that's the short yeah. answer uh, I, I appreciate you and, and, and that, that, uh, that's really helpful. You know, you've, you've touched on it a, a couple of times. And I just thought again, maybe for some of our listeners who, who aren't as facile, uh, of course, as, as you are. It, in general, the mechanics of divorce, at least to my understanding, are the separation of property spousal support going forward and child support going forward. And, uh, you know, I, I would think that the, the separation of property in general is pretty straightforward, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how child support is, mm-hmm. is constructed. And then more importantly, I think the, the biggest area of gray um, would be, would be spousal support. Okay. So it, it's in, in, a, in some cases that have, you know, helped surgeons or doctors, the separation of property and spousal support uh, tend to be quite complicated because um, it depends. So I, I know a lot of doctors or surgeons who function like they, they kind of provide services under a corporate entity. So because of that, like um, at least when it comes to uh, spousal support, it's not the income that they're claiming on their personal, you know, T1 general tax returns. The mm-hmm. income under their corporate name um, um, can become fully available for the purposes of spousal and child support. So if you made, hypothetically, you made a million dollars a year and you only took out a hundred thousand uh, dollars for your own personal income, when it comes to your support payments, it's not the $100,000 that's going to be considered. It's going to be potentially the million dollars that has to be considered. So, um, and if you don't want the million dollars a year to be considered, you need to come up with an argument why some or, you know, like the majority of that money is needed to stay in the corporation. And some of the reasons is, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I want to start a clinic. I, I need the money to, you know, invest in purchasing a clinic or hiring doctors, or I need some money to stay there in case I get sued in the future. And that's why, you know, my income shouldn't be a million. It should be a hundred or 200 or $300,000. Um, so it, it does become complicated when it comes to um, spousal support because sp- spousal and child support are purely based on incomes. And the question is, what is your income? Is it your full corporate income or is it, you know, is it something other than that? Um, spousal support also is a, is a big problem for a lot of doctors and surgeons who marry, you know, like I, I've had cases where, you know, two people were like high school sweethearts and one of them became a nurse and the other one became a doctor, right? Or a surgeon. And by the time they separate, one person makes $50,000 a year the other one can make, you know, $600,000 a year. What that means is that the higher earner is going to have to pay sometimes tens of thousands of dollars just in spousal support per year to the lower earner. And that seems very unfair because, um, you know, they would say my my ex-spouse doesn't need 30 grand a month to live on. You know, yes, I did make a lot of money, but we saved a lot of it. You know, we bought properties or I kept the money in my company. And now, I have to treat this as if every time I get, you know, $50,000 a month, 25,000 of that has to just go, go, go to my ex, which, you know, what, why, what does she want to do with $25,000? That's been a big contentious thing. Like a lot of cases have tried to cap incomes or reduce them or, or whatnot, but it's just a very complicated area of law, um, which can be quite 
contentious. And for that reason, I think the best thing anybody can do with their lives if they want to get married is to have a prenuptial agreement, which hopefully we'll get to in a second. As far as uh, properties go, property goes, that's also quite complicated because uh, a lot of surgeons or doctors, like I said, they have companies and corporations that can hold uh, real estate properties or businesses. And at the time of divorce, you have to value those. You have to determine, you know, how much of that value was brought into the marriage and how much was accumulated. You need chartered accountants and appraisers. Uh, it makes me tired even <laughs> talking about it, which, again, I tell you, it's, it's just best to address those through the prenuptial agreement so you never have to go there. That's that's such wise advice, and you know, of course, it's 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 like a patient for us, right? You might have the same diagnosis, but every scenario and every situation can be so different. It's it's remarkable. Yes. I I'm curious if you could describe to us the the child, um, the children's support, mm -hmm. uh, in in particular, and how that works. You know, based on the grid, and then maybe even more importantly, the extrapolation beyond that for your examples of someone's making, you know, 50 and then 600 or, mm -hmm. or, or a hundred and a million or, or however that works. Yeah. So um, child support is a bit more uniform. So, you know, sometime, you know, if uh, 10, I don't know, long, long time ago, I think it was 1976 or no, maybe early, uh, more recent, but in any event, the government came up with something called the child support guidelines which are federal. So, you know, they're set by the federal government and, and it's very, they, they're very straightforward. You plug in incomes and a number generates. Um, in a situation where I'm going to say, you know, my, let's say my client is a surgeon or a doctor and his or her spouse has the children in his or her care more than 60% of the time. If that person has the children more than 60% of the time, that person's income doesn't matter. They could be making two million or zero, doesn't matter. The only income that is considered is the income of the person who has the children less than 40% of the time. So what happens is the guidelines say up to $150,000, you use this formula. You literally you know, put, put in the income up to $150,000. You decide how many children, you click how many children and the province, and you can just go online. It generates a number, which is the child support you need to pay. For incomes more than $150,000, the amount of child support becomes the discretion of the judge or the decision maker or by agreement. What that means is that the, 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 the decision maker is going to have some liberty to decide what that amount should be. But the scary part of this, in, in a sense, is that more and more recently, um, judges don't apply the discretion. They just take the entire amount of income. They plug it into the same federal child support guidelines, and it, it, it basically generates a number um, generates just a generic number, you know, given the amount of income, and that becomes the, the number that you have to pay. Um, so judges don't deduct, like don't reduce that number, which I think in some situation they should do more often because sometimes, for example, if you're making a million dollars and you have two children and you have to work and you can't have the children more than 40% of the time, you find yourself in a situation where you're paying 15, 20 grand tax-free per month for the support of children who may have very minimal expenses, you know, like an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old, you know, you can take them to all the horseback riding lessons you want, but to, to, for those children to have $20,000 per month in expenses, 
seems quite high. Um, so there's been a lot of litigation over this. You know, sometimes some judges apply what's called the cap to income. So they cap the income at 150 or sometimes a million uh, or sometimes not at all to determine child support. And um, yeah, it's the, the general principle behind it is that the parent who is a higher earner can provide a very high standard of living to the children when the children are, are in his or her care and those children deserve to have the same standard at the other parents' home. Therefore, you know, that's, you know, they're going to have to pay a high amount of child support. Yeah, that's, that's very, very interesting. And, you know, we certainly see those, those exact examples around us. Unfortunately, all, all, all the time, it seems like it's really hard to make a million dollars. Not hard. I'm going to rephrase that. It's a, it can be quite damaging to make a million dollars compared to 150, as you point out, if you're on that same extrapolated um, uh, yeah. matrix. It's, it's an interesting philosophical discussion for sure. Yeah. I, I, I'm curious if we could move on to maybe something else, uh, e- maybe equally, philo- um, uh, equally interesting and, and soft and Really, you know, you touched on it a little bit. One of the things you hear physicians say, um, right or wrongly, is, you know, uh, I studied my my whole life. My training uh, pathway was, say, 18 years if you've done a couple of surgical fellowships. Mm-hmm. Um, the other person was um, maybe working, maybe not, and doing other stuff with or without children. Mm-hmm. Why should it be philosophically that um, essentially that other person is able to reap half of the financial benefits from from that relationship and, mm-hmm. and I, I think in particular you know it, it highlights a, a number of potential areas but it, you know it, it re, re-emphasizes how important obviously this is true but mm-hmm. how important you know picking or, or or merging with the right spouse is and and the decision to have children there these are two you know um, really 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 life critical decisions up front um, mm-hmm that I think a lot of us tend to be romantic about and, mm-hmm. and maybe not put the, the thought into it that we should. Yes. Um, you know, a bit of a good news. <laughs> I know I've talked about a lot of bad news uh, for, for your audience potentially, but um, you know, the, the law is not that stringent. Like it's not a one size fit all. So let's say, you know, again, I'm using the example of, you know, we were high school sweethearts. We got together and, you know, one person stayed at home to take care of the children while I was able to use that time to go to, you know, university and do my uh, residency and fellowships and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Like this person allowed me to get to where I am today. And now 20 years later, this person doesn't have the education that she, she or he could have gotten if she didn't have to care for the children and doesn't have the career uh, prospects or advances that I was able to have. So in a, in, a, in a very traditional situation like that, when there's children involved and one person was clearly um, educationally and career-wise disadvantaged because of marriage and having to raise children, mm-hmm. then it seems more fair for, for, you know, for the income to you know, be potentially split. Um, you know, because as you may appreciate, you know, like raising children is, is a very difficult, difficult, difficult job. Uh, it's definitely the most difficult job I've had to do. Even Yeah, absolutely. Other than being a lawyer, you get no break whatsoever. Um, but, you know, in a situation, though, like we have situations where, you know, two physicians, uh, for example, met each other at, you know, after med school, you know, or even at med school. And, you know, they, they, they studied together and they didn't have kids. And seven years later, you know, like one of them 
like they, they separated and one of them doesn't work right now and the other one makes a lot of money in that situation like no judge is going to come and like split the income of the higher earner in half you know like the, in, in other words the first question is was there a disadvantage arising from the marriage itself so if neither party experienced the disadvantage they, they could do it their education they could work and and they both have the kind of like more or, more or less the same ability to earn an income then no spousal support is payable that's the, like the first question is was there a disadvantage if the answer is yes then you go to determine how much spousal support is going to be and there's like different ranges of spousal support there's different time frames depending on you know the length of the the marriage you know in a marriage where it was only five years and there were no kids even if there's a big income disparity spousal support may only be ordered for one or two years you know but in a situation when it's a 25-year marriage they're in their 60s and and uh, they've, they've had kids and one person just doesn't is not going to be able to go out there and become you know very uh, you know, financially uh, secure, then spousal support is definitely going to be longer and, you know, higher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ma- makes sense. Um, I guess the next thing to talk about, you know, as we move towards the end here, and it is the idea to go back to the prenup. Mm-hmm. Um, give us a sense, because I, I think we all carry completely erroneous views of that concept. And you'll hear people say, well, they mean nothing. And other people say, well, they mean everything. Mm-hmm. I think as physicians, we really have zero sense uh, you know, in, in terms of the reality of that. Yeah. So prenups are extremely awkward. They're very uncomfortable. They go against like love in a sense, because here you are like planning the rest of your life with somebody. And then you're forced to, you know, imagine a situation when it's not working out and, and, you know, how much money is somebody going to get if things don't work out. Right. So like, I get that it's awkward and it's uncomfortable and a lot of people simply avoid it. But if there's one thing I want to say is this, that in the, the, the decade that I've been practicing family law, possibly the biggest reason for people breaking up is fi- purely financial reasons. And that's that can take the form of I wanted to buy a house, but he wanted to have a business or she spends too much money. On, she spends too much money on her purses, you know, or she takes too many trips or, you know, he drinks too much. He gambles too much. Financial issues during a relationship cause breakups to me more than affairs do or betrayals do. So the one thing that they that, that people don't talk about that a prenup does is it forces you to agree on, on finances at separation. So it, it kind of, you know, when, when people say, you know, like, you know, if a relationship is going to work, if you go traveling together or if you live together, I would add that. You will know if a relationship is going to work if you agree on finances, how to divide them and how to spend money. And a good exercise of that is to get into a prenup or discuss a prenup, because even that discussion will tell you if this is the right person to marry, you know, because a lot of times when you're engaged or you're dating or something like these financial things, such as buying a house or spending money on children, don't even come about until later during the marriage when when they come and, and they can become uh, quite uh, problematic. So uh, it's an exercise of testing the strength of your relationship. And the second thing is that that I want to say is when people separate, it's so devastating. It's so emotional. It's so mind-numbing that the last thing you want to do is to find yourself in a lawyer's office or try to figure out finances if you don't have to. Uh, 
when you separate, the only thing you want to focus on is to mend your broken heart and what to do with respect to your children. So in order to reduce your own stress, in order to create clarity for, you know, if something like that happens, it's to the interest of both people to discuss things when, when things are calm and loving and to come to some sort of a conclusion so that you can put that aspect of things to rest and not think about them um, ever, hopefully. Um, but And when you separate, you at least have this peace of mind that, you know what, I can deal with my pain and my children, but I don't have to deal with the finances. If you frame this issue that way with your spouse, um, it they will see where you're coming from. You know, the, the problem, the mistake is when somebody goes and says, well, I made all this money. I want to protect my money. I, I want to make sure that you're not after my money. And, you know, we're, we're marrying for the right reasons. And I'm going to get a prenup to make sure you don't get a penny out of everything when we divorce. Obviously, the response to that is going to be very negative with one person saying, you know, why do you think I want you for money? And, and you know, why do you think I'm not worth anything? You know, it just creates problems. So the discussion of a prenup needs to be based on what's in our both best interest and why this prenup is going to help both of us. And, you know, one of the biggest... Uh, misconceptions is that prenups are made in such way that one person that makes all the money keeps everything at the end and the other person walks up walks out with nothing that's in 99% of the cases like just simply not the case people can say you know what like when we separate we'll we'll split 50-50 you know all, all these assets and we'll keep all these other assets separate and you know I'll agree to let's say like 5 years of spousal support or, you know, based on a cap of X amount, right? So you you just come to your own agreements because, um, and, and, you know, you you figure out what's fair if you separate and you put that on paper and then you, you put that to the side and go on, you know, to the sunset, you know, with your love, with, with your love life. Um, the biggest problem with not having prenups is when people separate, they each go to their own lawyers and because the law is just, there's, like you said, there's so many different situations where, uh, you know, a judge has so much discretion to do 50-50, 60-40, you know, include these assets, include this income and that income. So each lawyer tells the person, this is what I could get you. And now there's a distancing of positions and then, you know, litigation and conflict can arise. If you can just agree on on how to separate assets and you know what, what you're gonna get, even if it's a 50-50, you're reducing your conflict conflict by over 99%. And in that process, you don't have to spend your life savings on a, on, on lawyers fighting over disagreements. Um, so and and you know, this is another very important thing that I'm gonna finish with. Please don't think of getting into a prenup to basically save hundred percent of everything, because prenups can be invalidated or cancelled um, later if, if they, they if they if it turns out that they're significantly unfair uh, aka you know at, at the time of separation the prenup says the surgeon is going to walk away with 10 million and the and the other uh, the, the partner who raised the children is going to walk away with zero you know you want to get into a prenup which is which has some aspect of fairness to it maybe not 50 50 or even 40 60 but but you know leave something to the other person so that it's immune from being challenged in the future. I wanted to finish with with two questions, maybe the first a little bit negative and the other hopefully very positive. Um, the, the the more negative side of things is, you know, in, in an era where we're trying to deal with uh, intimidation and, and bullying and, and that whole sort of negative 
side of things, what, what are the rights of an individual? And let's just create a scenario, uh, a, a female physician who's, um, you know, in the midst of divorce and the male is bullying her or flip it around. Um, the female uh, divorcee um, is um, quote unquote harassing. And I know that word has a very yeah. special legal and, and political um, definition, but harassing the other sp- a spouse at, at, at their place of work, like in the mm-hmm. hospital. Mm-hmm. What, what, what are the rights and, and how would you recommend that those, those types of uh, scenarios move forward or, or be improved? Yeah. That's, a, that's an excellent question. And um, a few years ago, we actually, as a province, changed our legislation to recognize a, uh, a concept which we call family violence. And family violence can, it has been interpreted as uh, not just like physical violence, as psychological abuse or mistreatment as financial abuse or mistreatment, AKA somebody makes making a lot of money and not paying, you know, like support for their children has been um, defined as family violence. It's really what it is, is somebody taking advantage of their position of power to bully or, or uh, put somebody else under duress. And if family violence is found in a case People can lose custody of their children. Um, they may have to pay a lot of money and they may be subject to various orders which would have almost a, not almost actually, a criminal aspect to them. So unfortunately, you know, given COVID, you know, this prime example when, you know, somebody who's abused at home is now stuck at home because what are you going to do? Go to like shelters that are closed or, you know, when, when you have no power and no money, you stay at home and you get abused more and more. Um, in, so in, in those situations, the law has allowed us as family lawyers to use numerous measures to make sure family law, violence doesn't happen. The most extreme of it is being allowed to go to court without the knowledge of the, you know, quote unquote abuser and get a court order in their absence, uh, forcing them to, to stay away, at least, you know, like you can even say 30 kilometers from the, the, the person who's abused or the children. And um, and if they come close, they can be arrested by the police. So that's that's like the most extreme. Um, most cases don't fall in that extreme case where, you know, there's so much abuse that you have to get restraining orders. But there, there are there are other um, mechanisms such as conduct orders, uh, which are which would relate to situations that you've explained where a judge in your absence or presence would make a ruling that you're not allowed to go to the person's you know, place of employment. You can't disparage the person. You can't talk negatively about the person with your children or anybody else for that matter. And if you do, you're gonna be in contempt of a court order which can carry very, very extreme consequences such as you know, the, the least of which would be fines and, and the most extreme of which would be put, being put in prison. So, you know, I, I'm so grateful that we live in a country that more and more every day is acknowledging family violence, which is absolutely rampant in, 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 in families more than anywhere else. And, and it's even being defined by, by you know, like I, I just read a case lately that it was actually about to doc, uh, a doctor and her, actually two doctors. This is really interesting. So one of them that was, this was like from a South Asian community where, 
the woman became a doctor and she was very ambitious and she just wanted to go out and work. And her husband was actually a dentist. And he wrote her a letter at the time that they were separating. And, and he basically said, you know, I can't take this anymore. Your role is to stay at home, make my dinner because, you know, I work so much and take care of our child. And if you can't agree with that, then I have to separate. Obviously, they separated. But the, the judge found family violence in that by saying that, you know, you are basically like taking a woman who's trying to just, you know, have a, a job which would be at your level. And you're basically, you know, forcing her or putting her under duress that if you if you don't do X, Y and Z, I'm going to leave you. And I'm, you know, I'm basically going to fight you over everything. So, um, again, we, we have multiple numerous mechanisms to address family violence through courts, through lawyers and through mediators, which would definitely protect those who are vulnerable. Well, that's uh that's a scary and and disappointing case vignette. There's mm-hmm. there's no doubt. The, the the last thing, which you know, again, hopefully we, we end on a positive note mm-hmm. um, here today. And, and again, appreciate your time so so very much. Yes. Is really a very simple question. How do you pick a good family lawyer that that works well for you and with you? And I, I you know, the caveat to that or the comment to that would be, as you pointed out, when when the divorce process happens. It's almost surreal. It's almost yeah. like you're you're dreaming, and it's very hard, I think, for a lot of us to mechanize uh, finding a lawyer. You know, you start to ask your friends that have been divorced, your colleagues, who did mm-hmm. you have, and and that's mm-hmm. usually the way it goes. But what are some of the things that should be red flags, um, maybe for for that selection, or or how how do we find folks? And of course, in Vancouver, it's you. That this is very clear. But but. <laughs> But what about just, you know, in general, as a, as a principle or a philosophy for, for all of our listeners? I'll give you a short answer and a tip, which I actually thought about uh, this morning in the car. How do you find the best family lawyer? Because you Google, you know, Google will only tell you so much. And um, when, when you've never been inside a courtroom or having gone through a divorce, like how, how do you do it? And a really good idea came to my mind, which I'm very excited to share. What I would say is in the short format, find the best mediator, family law mediator in town, which is very easy to find. You can uh, you can go online to look at, you know, the best mediator or you can go on like um, Mediate BC uh, roster and it, it shows all the like the prominent mediator. Go to that mediator and ask them if they would give them a synopsis of your file and ask them to refer you to a good family lawyer. What does that? This is what it does. A prominent family law mediator has been a senior family lawyer, number one. Number two, they've dealt with hundreds of family lawyers who come before them to mediate a case. So they get to know family lawyers, they know the approach, and they know the quality of the lawyer's work. Take that referral and like ask for maybe two or three names. And then because, you know, at least with, with physicians and surgeons, you know, they, they do enjoy a bit of a financial liberty to be able to test the waters. Um, take, you know, ask for two or three referrals and then go and meet with those lawyers and interview them and see beyond anything else who you connect with better. Don't pay attention to, you know, when they say these are the results I'm going get, to get you because no lawyer can get you results. You know, the judge gets you results or you, you get your results when you agree with something. So don't worry about what they say they can get you only focus on um, am I connecting with this lawyer 
are they understanding who I am? Are they empathizing with my situation? And most importantly, are they giving me constructive um, suggestions instead of destructive suggestions? Constructive suggestions would include, you know what, like, let's have a four-way meeting. Let's do some mediation. Let me call the other lawyer and just have a chit-chat with them. You know, um, here's a, like a path or like a, like a way to resolve your case. You know, these are the steps involved. Like that lawyer will kind of put some peace of mind and, you know, definitely ask for their fees as well. So you're not, you know, shocked when the first bill comes, arrives. Um, what you need to avoid is, I hate to say it because we have really good <laughs> Google ratings ourselves, but don't go based on Google ratings. Uh, don't think that who, whatever firm gets the best Google ratings is you know, going to be the best lawyer for you. Um, don't look for an aggressive lawyer. Don't go on Google and put aggressive lawyer because I, as much as I understand when you're in a conflict, you want the best protection. An aggressive lawyer is only going to destroy things. You, you want an assertive lawyer. And I have a blog on that. Um, and don't ask your family and friends for the best lawyer. Just please don't do that. It's, it's almost like going to an architect and asking who's the best surgeon in town. Like, I, I wouldn't do that personally. You know, I, to, I would go to a surgeon to ask, you know, I would may, maybe I'd go to a heart surgeon to ask for, you know, who's the who the best brain, brain surgeon is, which is, you know, my my, you know, that, that even is not totally accurate, but it's even it's at least better than going to a family friend who has no idea anything, you know, anything about medicine. That's kind of like the similarity I said, you know, go to a family law mediator instead of going, you know, going to your family and friends because that mediator has been a lawyer and knows lawyers. It's the same as, you know, the heart surgeon at least has worked hopefully in the hospital where the brain surgeon has worked and has witnessed their, you know, quality of work. So um, don't ask for legal advice from family and friends. Don't think that your case is going to be similar to your family and friends who went through a divorce and kind of only focus on you, your connection with your lawyer and the questions you have for your lawyer. And at any time during the process, you know, between you and your lawyer, if you are unsure about something, if you have questions, if you feel like, you know, things are getting shaky or, you know, what the lawyer is doing may not be what you want to do, always go and just set up an hour consultation with another lawyer and ask for a second opinion. That tends to provide a lot of assurance and, you know, a bit of a critique of your lawyer's work. And either, you know, the second lawyer is going to tell you they're doing the right job or they're going to say this, these, these are the things we would do differently. And whatever kind of like sounds better for you is the, is the path that you need to follow. You've been listening to Cold Steel the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.